All right, 1 Samuel chapter 26. The theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And uh, tonight we're going to learn an important lesson, not necessarily one from positive situations. This chapter uh, 26 is very similar to chapter 24 um, because remember chapter 24 is where Saul came out hunting David and Saul ended up coming into David's cave to uh, relieve himself and uh, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, did not. Um, We're going to find a similar situation here. Um, So the question of course should be, well since we've already kind of heard that story, why is this one included? Like why do this? We already know David's not going to kill Saul, right? Well, there are some important differences in in these two chapters, and they give us an indication of David's changed heart, and not in a good way. Um, David, if you remember last time, he was trying to reconcile with Saul. He was trying uh, to to fix the situation. But this time, we're going to find out he just wants Saul to leave him alone. Because this time, the encounter doesn't happen because Saul walks into David's cave. David seeks out Saul and goes right into the heart of his war camp. So, chapter 26, verse 1, it says, And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gabeah, saying, Does not David hide himself on the hill of Hakelah, which is before Jeshimon? And then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakelah, which is before uh, Jeshimon, by the way, but David abode in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. This is the second time that these men, these Ziphites, the people living in the town of Ziph, have betrayed David's location to Saul. I don't know why they had it out for David. Uh, Perhaps they were just very loyal to Saul. Perhaps they hoped to curry Saul's favor. And perhaps they were just good citizens who'd been misinformed by David's enemies. Because it doesn't tell us their motive. We don't know. However, this is a good warning to us about getting involved in condemning someone based on secondhand information. So many people are angry today based on information that has been disseminated to them and not firsthand experience. So many things are discussed as facts and they're all, people are all bent out of shape about it when they don't have any reality of it at all. Be so very, very careful what you listen to. Proverbs 18, verse 8, there's an interesting verse. I think it's very applicable to our current uh, culture. It says, the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. In Leviticus 19, verse 16, the Lord says this, he says, you shall not go up and down as a talebearer among your people, neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor, because I am the Lord. I'm the one that knows everything. I'm the one that knows the truth. So be careful what you're, you know, we had this uh, song that we'd play for the kids when they were little. Be careful what your little ears hear. Be, ca- be careful what your little eyes see. That doesn't change when we get big eyes and big ears. We still need to be careful. Don't become wounded deep in your soul because you aren't guarding your ears. Now, this hill that they see David in, the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, is a desert hilltop just north of Carmel. That's Abigail's old home. And remember, um, Abigail has now become David's wife. So uh, it's possible that having heard that David took a wife from Carmel, that David's now in Hakila, that Saul saw David's presence there as an invasion of sorts. He's setting up some type of cabal. He's got his multiple wives now, his harem in a sense. He's setting up a rival kingdom, and I can't have that. It's possible that he thought David was no longer content to live far off in the desert cliffs by the Dead Sea, and now he's going to do something. And while it doesn't tell us the exact reason why Saul decides to come out and hunt David, the truth is, Saul just can't let it lie. Whatever the reason, whatever worry he has, he just can't let it lie. He still has this need to control the kingdom, to show no sign of weakness lest it all be stripped from him. And so, verse 2 says, Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. That's the same exact thing he did last time. He took 3,000 elite soldiers. These may not be the same men, but this is an elite strike force just like the last time. 
and he's going down there to seek David. The word seek means to call someone to account for their actions, to sanction someone for not meeting a standard. The plan is to bring David to justice. You know, it's hard not to shake my head when I read this because I think, how stubborn can you be, Saul? How arrogant can you be? David swore an oath last time that he wouldn't bring any harm to you or to anyone in your family. He has no designs on the kingdom, not when you're a king. But that's what happens when your heart is in an irreconcilable place. Saul's heart at this time is completely callous to the idea of doing things differently. Didn't start that way, did it? You know, remember when Samuel way back, way back, you know, probably 17 months ago when we started for Samuel? Way back, you know, when Samuel confronted Saul and he said, when you were little in your own eyes, did not the Lord raise you up? There was a time when Saul was pliable to the Lord, when he followed the Lord's lead. How did it get this way? Well, it became this way by Saul's repeated refusal to be reconciled to God's discipline in his life. Listen, (laughs) I tell my kids this. I say, I do this now when I'm disciplining them. I do this now because when you get older, someone else is going to do it in a much more important situation. Someone else is going to sit you down and say, hey, you need to do your job better. Someone's going to sit you down and say, hey, you can be a better parent, or hey, you can be a better husband or a better wife. And, and if your same attitude is, oh, I'm not, you know, nobody gets me, you know? If your same you know, mindset and attitude is going to be like the, the, the rebellious teenager or the attitude five-year-old, you know, then you're never going to grow. You're just going to stay the same. We need to be open, ultimately, not just to people's discipline, but the Lord's discipline. We read it in our scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 12. It's a part of Christianity. If you're not getting disciplined, then you should be worried because it means you might not be his. God spanks his kids because he loves us. (laughs) Someone said amen. And I spank mine. Hebrews 12.12 tells us what to do. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know, sometimes we'll discipline our kids, you know, and mope around. I say, listen, that's not the right response to this. I know it stinks. We read earlier, no chastening for the present is, is joyful, but it's painful, all right? It's painful to hear. It's painful when me and Bev have a, a serious conversation. She points out a flaw in my life that I didn't know was there. That's painful. Nobody likes to hear you have failed or you, you are not in a good place in this area of your life. No one likes to hear that. And certainly when the Lord deals with us because he knows the deepest, darkest part of our hearts. And he says, this is not like my son. This needs to change. It hurts. There are times in my life when the Lord has dealt with me in areas, and I think, Lord, I thought I learned this lesson already. And the Lord's like, well, no. <laughs> no. No, you need to learn it again. And you think, Lord, am I, am I still a child? Have I not learned anything? But at some point, you just got to lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and get walking again. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Yes, you've, you've turned an ankle, you know, and that's why the Lord's talking to you. You can keep trying to go on and do what you're doing, but the Lord's like, your ankle's not working right. Let me heal it. Let me fix it. The problem is, if you don't respond to that, well, then that which is lame gets completely dislocated. Instead, rather, rather let it be healed the writer says. Follow peace with all men without and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently lest any man fall short of the grace of God. God has given us so much grace. He desires so much more for us than we want for ourselves most of the time. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby not just you be defiled but many be defiled. There have been many Christians who have wrecked other people's lives because they just won't take the pill that God's trying to give them. They won't take the medicine that the Lord's trying to give them. The Lord doesn't taste good. I don't want it. I don't need it. I'm fine on my own. And then what happens? They get bitter. They get bitter towards the Lord because he keeps trying to go to the same thing. And they end up defiling others. This is Saul, the man who will never take his medicine. And his heart's become so calloused. Well, verse 3, it says that Saul, when he gets down to the location where the intel you know, it was given to him that Dave was, 
It says that he pitched in that hill of uh, Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, by the roadside. So um, not exactly where David was, but pretty close to where David was, where the Ziphites had claimed at least David and his men were. And David, it tells us, though, he was not actually there. The intel was incorrect. David had only been there temporarily, and then he had moved back into the desert. But David abode in the wilderness. And so David, the word there, saw, it does not mean that David saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. It means David was shown. David got news that Saul was back again chasing, and so David sent scouts to see if it was true. And so David therefore sent out spies, and then he understood that Saul was indeed come to find him. Now, every other time Saul came out to chase David, what did David and his men do? They ran. They fled. But they don't run this time. This time David goes towards Saul with a very clear plan to send the king a message. Verse 5. David arose and he came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay and Abner the son of Ner, the captain of his host. And Saul lay in the the trench, it means the camp that's there. Uh, He lay in the encampment and the people pitched round about him. So then David answered and, and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, two of his men that were with him, brother to Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul and to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David, he is now coming towards Saul's army and he oversees this camp where Saul and his army are are laid out. And it mentions here that he sees where Saul's sleeping, and he sees Abner, the son of Ner. Abner is uh, the captain of Saul's army. He is, I want to say, Saul's nephew. I might have that incorrect. Now, chapter 24 didn't tell us if Abner was present in the last attempt to find David, But the fact that he's here this time shows uh, David that Saul is serious enough in his attempt to bring the captain of his entire army with him. And yet David still is not deterred in his plan. He picks out the spot where Saul's sleeping, uh, surrounded by his soldiers, and he presses forward and he asks two of his men, we don't know how many David took with him, but he asks two of them if one of them will go down. The first guy is Abimelech the Hittite. We don't learn anything else about him in Scripture. The second guy here is Abishai the son of Zariah, the brother of Joab. This is our first meeting with the boys of David's sister, Zariah. Uh, They are going to become quite famous as we study through 1st and 2nd Samuel. They also are going to become quite the headache to David. Abishai is um, a brood of a man. Uh, He was a very capable soldier, uh, but he was a brood of a man. He was fiercely loyal to David. He's the one that later on when... um, when uh, Shimei is cursing David from the hill and throwing rocks at him when he's fleeing from Absalom. And Habashai says, you want me to put a spear through that guy and shut him up? I mean, this is a no-nonsense kind of guy. He has no qualms about killing people. He is a very capable soldier, and he is intensely, fiercely loyal to his uncle David. He stays with David uh, when the rest of the family is, you know, trying to stay safe from Saul in the country of Moab. He stays with David. And, and, and although he doesn't fully understand, or actually completely misunderstands David's reasoning to go down to the camp, he offers to go. He has no problem walking down into a camp of 3,000 soldiers when it's just two of them. And so he says, I'll go. And so verse 8, then said Abishai to David, oh, I'm sorry, verse 7, so David and Abishai came to the people by night, and when they get there, they find something very unexpected. Behold, Saul lay sleeping within the the trench, the King James says, just inside the encampment, and his spear was stuck in the ground at his bolster. It means his headrest, his pillow. Uh, But Abner and the people lay round about him. There's no guards. Everybody's sleeping. I don't know about you. I, I don't do that. I mean, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm in a strange place, I, I tend to have a hard time just going to sleep. Um, and, and these guys are on the hunt for someone that they consider an enemy of the state. I can't imagine they wouldn't at least set a guard when their king is sleeping in their midst. David finds multiple shocking circumstances here. Saul's asleep out in the open, and everyone around him is asleep too. We'll see why later. But they get, and from a distance in the camp, they can see that Saul's got his spear right by his pillow. That spear is something that Saul often kept with him. 
This was the weapon Saul had used, tried to, uh, used to try to kill David on multiple occasions. This is the weapon Saul used to try to kill Jonathan when Jonathan stood up for David. This is the weapon that defined Saul's self-willed rule. And I can only imagine what David got stirred up inside of him when he saw that spear sitting by Saul's pillows, by his head. I don't know what it stirred up in David, but it certainly stirred up anger in Abishai because he has an idea that seems like the perfect justice for Saul. Verse 8, then said Abishai to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him, I pray you, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. I only need one shot at this, David. I will pin his body to the ground, and he won't even twitch after I'm done. I tell you, man, he's a brute of a man. There's at one point in time when these two guys come to David with a plan, and he goes, sons of Zariah, what do I have to do with you? What do you think I am? You think I'm a butcher? They just thought in very practical terms. They did not have any morals when it came to killing somebody. And so he says to David, this day God has delivered your enemy into your hand. This has to be God, David. There's no other way to explain everyone being asleep right now. And since God must want us to do this, therefore... He says, let me smite him, I pray you. That's, that's a begging word. Please, let me end this with one blow. There won't be a need for a second attack. I'll make it fast. I'll make it final. David, I can end all of the heartache for you right now. That spear that's hunted you down will be the instrument of his immediate death. It'll be the perfect justice. But interestingly enough, David doesn't grant him this request because that's not why David came down into the camp. And David said to Abishai something very interesting. He didn't say don't kill him. He said, do not destroy him. It's a Hebrew phrase, altasketh. Altasketh. What's interesting about it and why I bring it up is there are three psalms that have the title altasketh in front of it, do not destroy. All of those psalms refer to the time that Saul hunted David, all three of them. Now, if you read those psalms, they are not merciful psalms. That's the one where God, David asked God to break their teeth, cut their tongues in half. Yeah, it's not a merciful psalm. But they repeat a principle that David lived by in his treatment of Saul. God, you need to deal with my enemies because I won't take matters into my own hands. All three psalms say it's fascinating because if you read it and you see the, like most modern English translations will say altasketh and then they'll say do not destroy underneath that. And most of the time we read it is, oh, David's asking God not to let him be destroyed. No, 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 no. David is writing these songs. He's reminding himself, don't kill him. I know everything within you wants to, but don't. That would be a mistake. That would be wrong. He explains Why? For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless to, means to go unpunished or to be innocent. Listen, we started talking about it uh, last Sunday night that there are bits of David's life that are cracking right now beneath the weight of his struggles. David is struggling right now. This is a, not, a, not a high high note in David's life. This is a struggling time in David's life. But there is a sense when you see him writing these three psalms, you see his response to Abishai here, that David knows if he kills Saul, he'll cross a line where he'll never be the same man. He knows if he does this, he'll never be the same man. And you know what? For all that David is struggling with his situation, that concerned him more than being a fugitive. And thus, he entrusts the Lord to deal with Saul. Verse 10. David said, furthermore, I love this. They're in the middle of an enemy camp and they're just having a conversation. Shows you how asleep these guys are. They're just out. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him or his day shall come to die or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. As true as God is alive, which there's no more true thing out there. He says, something will happen to Saul. We won't be fugitives forever, nephew. God will keep his promises to me. Now, this response of David does beg a question. Why in the world are you risking your life coming down here then? 
If it's not to kill Saul, if it's not to stop the enemy who's come after you, why are you here, David? (laughs) What is your plan? Well, verse 11, he says, but, he said, you can't do that for me, but I pray you, you can do this for me. Please do this for me, Abishai. Take thou now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water, and then let us go. Can you fetch that spear and grab his jug of water that's down there by him too? And then let's skedaddle. And so it says, so David took the spear. David did not. It's just saying he took it from Abishai. He didn't take it from Saul. Took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away, and no man saw it. Why? Nor knew it, neither awaked, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. This was a supernaturally induced state of heavy sleep. And that explains why David can just walk into the camp. Now, this isn't just a miracle for David. It's also a mercy of God to Saul. So how is it a mercy of God that he, Saul was at David's mercy? No, it's a mercy of God to Saul because when Saul woke up, he would know that there was no rational explanation for elite soldiers and trained guards to all fall asleep at the same time. He would know that God was trying to get his attention which is another sad indictment of Saul's stubborn heart. Can I plead with you tonight? If God is putting speed bumps on your road that you're on right now, please, please don't ignore them. Things didn't have to end the way they did for Saul, and certainly if God's putting speed bumps on your path, then it's so you'll turn around and take a different one. Now, we still don't know why David risked his life to get Saul's spear and his water bottle. Why? Well, verse 13 will inform us. It says, Then David, verse 13, went over to the other side, and he stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner the son of Mer, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? And Abner answered and said, Who art thou that cries to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a valiant man? Who is like unto you in Israel? Wherefore, why then have you not kept the Lord your king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing is not good that you have done. As the Lord lives, you are worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king, you think I'm lying? See now where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. Now, a couple things to point off before we get to David's accusation. David, this time, gets to the safety of the next hill. It mentions very clearly multiple times he went afar off and a great space is between him and Saul's encampment now. That is radically different from the last time that David confronted Saul. Last time, Saul goes into the cave, does his business, David cuts the thing off his you know, robe, and then he follows Saul right out of the cave. They are literally you know, not very far apart, maybe eight, ten feet apart. And that's when David falls on his face, bows down, and pleads with his father-in-law, his king, and his lord. He tries to reconcile with him. But that is not the case this time. Last time, David reached out to Saul in the hopes of convincing Saul he meant him no harm. But that is not David's intent this time. David has given up hoping that he and Saul could ever be reconciled. And so he keeps this great space between him, and he has a message he wants to communicate to the king. And so he calls out and he says to Abner, the son of Mer, do you not answer me, Abner? Do you have no reply? Apparently David had been shouting for a while to Saul from from that hill. Finally, they start waking up and Abner's the first one to answer. And finally he says, who are you that cries to the king? Probably because of the distance or just the grogginess, who knows? I don't know why, he just didn't know who was talking. And what's interesting is instead of identifying himself, David calls out Abner for his lax guard. David said to Abner, are you not a valiant man? The phrase there means, literally in the Hebrew, it means, are you not supposed to be some great warrior? Who is like you in Israel? You're the captain of the host. Why then have you not kept? Why have you not guarded the Lord your king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your Lord. David, this is clever. David shows how easy it is to twist the facts to create a false narrative to accuse someone of something absurd because that's how you want to see it. And he says, see, 
See now where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. It's right here. I snuck in. I got facts to prove. I got evidence that proves you should be executed as an unfaithful servant to Saul. You're a traitor. And why does David do this? Because these were the same type of arguments people were making against him. They would say, well, if David's innocent, why is he on the run? You know, if he's loyal, why isn't he fighting by Saul's side? It's crazy what you can do with a little bit of evidence, with a few facts twisted. You know, our day and age isn't the only one with twisted facts and false narratives. It's been going on since sin entered the world. Remember that interesting fellow in the book of Genesis chapter 4? It just mentions it real quick. His name's Lamech, and he took multiple wives. And then Lamech, he gets into a fight with somebody and kills him, and he comes home and tells his wife, he goes, here now, wives. He goes, you know, Cain killed someone, and, and, and you, know, he, you know, he was marked that if anyone killed him, he'd be avenged. So in the same way, if these people try to take re- revenge on me for killing this guy, they'll be judged sevenfold. Really? We don't even know what happened. We don't even know if you were right. We don't know if you were, I mean, you know, he's twisting everything of what happened that night. Whatever the reason was, he killed this guy. People have been taking facts and twisting them and making false narratives all throughout history. And may I please encourage you, don't become a part of that. Don't let men make your heart grow cold. Listen, we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to love the lost. And if that fails, you're called to love your enemies. We have clear marching orders from God that aren't up for debate on this issue. So let's be faithful disciples of Jesus and not be faithful disciples of information specialists. Now, while Abner could not figure out who was speaking, Saul knew right away who was speaking. Verse 17, and Saul recognized David's voice and he said, is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. You know, the last time David saw Saul and he replied, he said, my Lord, my king, and my father. Not this time. David's language throughout this entire chapter is purely that of a liege to his Lord. There is no personal touch anymore. And he says to Saul, verse 18, why does my Lord pursue after his servant, not his son-in-law, but after his servant? What have I done? What evil's in my hand? Why are you hunting me again? I thought we had this settled in our last meeting. Have I done some new evil? Have you discovered new, some new machination of mine against you? And because there is no new charge Saul can level against David, he says nothing. And thus, David now finally proceeds with his plan. Verse 19. Now, therefore, I pray you. You got nothing? All right. Now, therefore, I pray you. Since I've done no new wrong against you, please listen to my words. Let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. Really listen, Saul. Don't dismiss what I'm about to say because it's important. If the Lord have stirred you up against me, well, then let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, then cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. David conceives two possible reasons that, Paul, that Saul has returned to hunt him down. Since there's no new charge against David, there's no, nothing new that David's done wrong in the kingdom, he perceives that there can only be two reasons you've come back out to hunt me after our last agreement. He says, first off, perhaps I've done something wrong and God sent you down. And if God sent you down here to punish me, then please know I'll gladly repent and make the prescribed offering in the law. You can go home. Just tell me what it is and I'll make the appropriate offering and I'll fix it. But, <laughs> but if not, it's not the Lord that sent you down. If men's accusations have stirred you to take action against me, oh, David says, cursed be they, be they before the Lord. I call on the Lord to do harm to them right now for such wicked lies is what he's saying. I pray God smite them with something, a really bad itch. Something. For they have 
driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, that's kind of dramatic, David. But what David's trying to say is, if, that, if it's because men have accused me of something, then cursed be they because they have really wronged me. What they have done to me is awful. Saul, you and these other men who have something against me are leaving me no choice but to leave my homeland, the land God gave me for an inheritance, the only place that I can obediently worship him. You're forcing my hand to leave. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a fugitive. Most of us probably don't. I hope none of you have ever had to live through that. But most of us know what it's like to be falsely accused. And man, when that happens, doesn't it make you feel like your options are so limited? Like, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you blast them. That, like, well, I, you know, I can blast them. And then you think, well, I might lose my job, you know? I mean, all these things happen. You're like, you feel like you're just crushed in this little tiny space with nowhere to move because all the different pathways you might take that they're going to turn out bad. The hardest part for me when I'm wronged is getting out of my own head. The truth is, David didn't have to leave the promised land. You know, you get wronged at work, you get falsely accused, you're, I, I, I have no other choice but to leave the company, you know? And it's like, if you just settle down for a minute, that's not the only choice, right? Not the only choice. You know, sometimes I'll come to Bev, and God bless her, and I'll be all up in a roar about something, and that's all I gotta do. And she's like, let's take a deep breath. That's not the only option you have. Yes, it is, it's the only option I have. David doesn't have to leave the promised land. In fact, every time he leaves the promised land, God tells him to go back, even though the situation hasn't gotten any better. While David's accusation is legitimate, it shows that he sees this situation as unfixable. He doesn't even seem to want reconciliation anymore. And so he's resorted to blaming others for leaving him with only bad options. And the problem when you do that is that's not biblical. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it tells us that God always makes a path for us. It says, there is no temptation taken you. In other words, you've never experienced any type of testing or trial or difficulty except such as is common to man. In other words, you, if you're going through something, somebody else has gone through it before you, and there's likely somebody else going through it right now somewhere in the world. And so instead of thinking, no one's ever been here before, there's no solution to this, I'm done for Remember that God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are capable. Wait a second. Okay, I hear this quoted all the time. God won't give you anything more than you can handle. That's a lie. That is not biblical. God gives me stuff I can't handle that's more than I can handle all the time. I can't handle anything. That's biblical. Jesus said, without me, you can do a few things. No thing, nothing. But Paul also said, I can do how many things through Christ who strengthens me? All things. So when we talk about here this idea that he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, the word there, it means to have the power to do something. We always have Christ who can through us do all these things. He's never, what he's saying here is not that I'll never give you anything you can't handle. If that's your mindset, you're probably confused because you're probably going, have gone through things that are too much for you to handle. But he always makes a power available to us for everything he allows us to go through. That's what he's saying. And in addition to that, it says this, but he will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. So David, is what you're going through extremely difficult? You bet. But David had a way of escape. There was a power available to him, a power that he'd been using already for so many years. And it was trusting in the Lord while on the move in the promised land. The problem isn't that that's not an option still. The problem is, is that David's weary of that option. He doesn't want to do that anymore. And thus, David comes to his purpose for sneaking into the camp and taking Saul's stuff. Not reconciliation, but a word from the 80s, a detente. He just wants a truce. Verse 20, 
1 Samuel 26. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the ground or fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one does hunt a partridge in the mountains. David says, let not my blood fall to the ground. Don't chase me out of the land so that I die in the land of my enemies. Let me stay here and leave me be. I'm no threat to you and you know it. Who is the king come out to chase? King of Israel. You're the king of Israel, this big thing. You come out to chase a flea. All right, I, have, I chase some bugs every once in a while at the house, but I'm not, I don't chase fleas. Can't see them. I can barely see the mosquito in front of me. You're chasing a flea. It's like one man hunting a partridge in the mountains. Now, partridge, the bird that's being referred to here, these are stout-bodied game birds, and they, they don't fly very far. In fact, when they have to fly, they tire very easily. And so what they would do is they would put up these nets where the birds, they corral the birds, and, and so they're flying back and forth between, between these nets, and they, what they do is they get so tired, they have to land. I was driving home from church today, and there was this crane come walking out in the middle of Lee Road right at the area to turn on to I-4. And it comes walking out, and, and I'm thinking, well, surely it's got wings. This thing's going to up and fly. And so I start driving towards it. And, you know, it, it's not flying. And I've learned, since I did crush a bird this way once, that sometimes they don't just fly. I remember I was going to, going to see Bev, and she's laughing because she knows this story. We were dating, and I was driving over to go see her one day. And behind her house, uh, not her house, but her neighborhood, the road driving up, there were always, what kind of birds were they, pigeons? I don't know what they were. They were these white birds, real pretty birds, and they would always conglomerate in the road. And so every time I'd drive up, they'd all scatter. And so I was trying to get to the house, because I think we had a date that night, and we need to be somewhere by a certain time. And so they weren't moving, and I'm like, well, I'll just speed up. Thump, 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 thump. Feathers everywhere behind me. And I was mortified. Absolutely mortified. Ruined the whole night. So this crane, you know, it comes, and I'm thinking, he's not going to fly. He's not going. He's going to get crushed. And so I'm, I'm slowing down, and finally I stop. And he just kind of swoops off real low with all the other cars going by. I don't know how the thing survived. The idea with these birds is to get them flying so low and tired out that they eventually land. And when they land, you got a bunch of people that run out and club them, and then you have lunch. Hey, it's better than the hell stories this morning. Now, the idea is you try to get them in large groups because when you're trying to corral them, obviously some get free. You don't ever do that with one partridge. And you certainly don't chase one all the way into the mountains. Basically what David's saying is, Saul, you've got far bigger problems than me. Saul, I'm not asking to come home. I just want you to leave me alone. Stop chasing me. And you know, whether it's a marriage or a family relationship, or friendship, it's always sad when someone gives up on a relationship, when hope is lost for any path forward. Christians are not supposed to be like this because Jesus isn't like this. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 7 and 8, it says, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. That's God's love for us. And we are to emulate our Savior. Now, David's words this time, they really hit Saul. And they actually move Saul so far as to make a commitment that he won't break this time. Look at verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David. I wish return there meant return with me. I wish that's what it meant, but it doesn't. It means you're free to go. He says, David, it was wrong for me to come out here again. You're right. You're free to go. Return. And again, he calls him my son, David. Saul owns David as his son, though he won't go the next step to reconcile. 
And so what he tells David, he says, for I will, you can free to go, for I will do no more harm. Do you no more harm? Because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. He tells David, no more evil, no more false accusations, no more hunts. And you know what? Saul will never hunt David again. In fact, these two will never see one another again. And why does Saul agree to David's terms? I think it finally sunk into him that David valued his life. He valued his position as king. He says, because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. It means, precious means to be of high value, something to be respected. And has that truth found some firm ground in Saul's heart? I think probably for the first time. He actually verbalizes his disgust at his own behavior, not just here, but over the years. He says, behold. Behold means I want everyone to pay attention to what I'm about to say. This isn't just for David. This is for everybody to hear. He says, I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. The phrase erred exceedingly, it means to go so very far astray. If you've ever found yourself very, very far astray, you understand what Saul is experiencing right now. There are several very sad moments toward the end of Saul's life, moments where it seems like he's this close to coming back. And this is one of them. They're sad because he realizes how lost he is, but they're doubly sad because he still doesn't turn around and come back to the Lord. It's never fun, but it's good to be slapped into your senses again like the prodigal son, right? When he's in the muck and the mire and he goes, what am I doing here? You know, and he finally, I love what the, the Jesus, as he tells the parable, he says, and when he came to himself, you know, he finally came to his senses again. He finally started thinking like a rational human being again. It's good to realize that you're in a place you have no business being. But realizing you're in a place that you have no business being is not repentance. Realizing you're in a place you have no business being is simply the mercy and kindness of God seeking to lead you to repentance. And so I ask you tonight, are you far away from where you should be right now? If so, don't see your relationship with God as irreconcilable. The only irreconcilable difference you can have with the Lord is unbelief. If you just never trust him. And so if you're away, come home. <laughs> come to Jesus. The Bible says he is meek and lowly of heart, and he longs to give you rest for your soul. There's something about this whole passage when I read it. I'm, I, maybe I read it wrong, but when I read it, I almost sense like a half-heartedness to what Saul's doing. It almost seems like he, the whole time he's like, what am I even doing out here? It, it seems the whole time he's just weary of the fight. He's tired of fighting against the Lord. He's worn out. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy or your own condemning heart that it's too late to turn around. Because if you're still breathing, it's not. Sadly, neither Saul or David believe that reconciliation is possible for themselves. And thus, David is satisfied with Saul's response. Verse 22, and David answered and said, Behold, the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. I don't, I'm not gonna bring it to you. I don't trust you that much. This object which has hunted my life that's in my hand, since you agree leave me be, then I see no reason to hold on to it, but I don't trust you enough to give it to you. In fact, David doesn't seem to really believe Saul because he reminds Saul that God has been witness of everything that happened today. Verse 23, the Lord rendered to every man his righteousness. That's a horrible translation. It literally means the Lord rendered to the man his righteousness. David is speaking of himself. Will render to me his righteousness, uh, me for my righteousness and my faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as your life was much set by, the phraser means to cause to become great. As your life was raised up, made great in my eyes, so let my life be made great, much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. He says, I've not done any wrong to you, Saul. I've been a loyal subject the entire time. 
And by sparing your life today, I've allowed you to remain great instead of dead. May God pay me back for that by making me great and preserving me from trouble in the future. If David wasn't already backsliding, I'd be tempted to think he was simply invoking the promise of sowing righteousness and reaping God's blessing. Because when we ask the question, does God bless our obedience, what's the answer? Yes. I mean, it's all throughout the the Scriptures. I mean, we go to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Receive mercy. So that implies if you're not merciful, you're not going to receive mercy, right? So there is a blessing that comes with the obedience of being merciful. So certainly God does that. And we know that David is living by kingdom principles here in sparing Saul's life. But if you've read into chapter 27 and you see what David does right after this encounter is over, it makes it really hard for me to see that David's heart is in the right place. I think David sees himself and what he's verbalizing is that he deserves better than this. And I think that's why David makes some of the mistakes he does toward the end of Saul's reign when he takes multiple wives, when he fights for the Philistines, when he wipes out entire towns to cover up his unfaithful service to the Philistine king he pledged loyalty to. It's going to get dark for David in a little bit. Whatever David's reasonings for invoking God's blessing on himself, though, Saul agrees. And so Saul says to David, verse 25, blessed be thou, my son David, you shall do, both do great things and also shall still prevail. So David went his way and Saul returned returned to his place. He says, I agree, David. May the Lord bless you. My son. Third time Saul says it. David never in this passage acknowledges Saul as his father-in-law. Again, I think Saul is this close to welcoming David home. I think he's this close to giving up the fight against the Lord. It's funny because he even pauses after he says, blessed be thou, my son David. It's almost like he's on the edge, like he, he knows what he needs to do. He seems nothing like the defiant king he's been for decades here. He seems like a man whose many years of fighting God have finally taken their toll. But sadly, the words that come next show that he still refuses to reconcile with David. And so he says, you shall do both great things and also prevail. I, I know you'll win this contest that we're having, David, of who's going who's gonna to run Israel. I know you're going to win that. I know I can't beat you. I know you'll be king. And the sad part is that's enough for David right now. If he leaves me alone, I don't care what he thinks. So David goes back into the desert and Saul goes home. And as I said earlier, they never see one another again. Now, Another downer. (laughs) I think it's important to recognize that even when one person is right and the other one is so wrong, oh, so wrong, does anyone ever win when a relationship fails? These are two Israelis, two of God's children, both with promises of God's love and blessing. There is no way anyone will convince me that this ending was what God wanted for them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us, commands us to be reconciled to God. And it explains to us that God in sending Jesus, and Jesus in the work that he did on the cross was reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, And as a result of us being reconciled to God, he has committed to us the word, the message of reconciliation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the troublemakers. We are called to be reconciled first with the Lord and then with others. It's why we read what we read in 1 John chapter 2 where it says, how can a man say he loves me and hate his brother? It's impossible. You can't. How can you love God whom you have not seen when you can't love your brother who you see all the time? It's an impossibility. It's an oxymoron. It's why Matthew 5, 43 through 45 exists where Jesus says, you have heard it said unto you, you know, hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemy. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for your enemy. All these various things that he says. Because if you do that, then you're like me. So the message tonight is 
Let's be those who live and preach reconciliation. Let's be those who initiate even when it's not ourselves that got us into the mess. Let's be those who seek to fix a relationship even when we're not the one who created the breach in the relationship. You know, there's a passage in Ezekiel that always convicts me. I'm not Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel. Might be Jeremiah. And it's where the Lord is chastising, he is rebuking the leaders in Israel. And one of the things he says there is he says, you have not gone, sought out to bring back that which you drove away. And I remember there was a situation in my life where someone had broken off contact with me and, they had, and it wasn't my fault, I had done nothing wrong. And I was reading through that passage, and the Lord said, you need, you need to go find him. And I said, I didn't, I didn't cross the problem. I don't need to go find anybody. And the Lord said, my good servants, they go and find the people that they drove off, even if they didn't mean to drive them off. Guys, if we're going to be different and be like our Father in heaven, isn't that what he did to us? I mean, does God have any guilt in any part of our relationship being breached? And yet, does the Bible say that we sought him first or he sought us first? These are heavy things, and certainly, I'm not sure I would have done any better in David's shoes, probably guaranteed to do worse. But the reality is, we can be better with the Lord's help. Amen? Lord, we love you, and we desire to be those who live and preach this message of reconciliation. And so, Lord, first off, that that means we need to do business with you if there's areas that we're not reconciled to you. Lord, if we've gone astray, you have been seeking us out. You've maybe even brought us here tonight to draw us to yourself. And then, Lord, maybe there are relationships right now that are out of sorts, that we have not pursued reconciliation because of the hurt and the pain. And and maybe we might even say, I haven't done anything wrong, and it's, it's so unfair, Lord. That was the case with David, right? That's why you shared this with us, so that we would be more like you and not like this. So, Lord, please melt our hearts, melt our hard hearts, our hurt hearts, comfort us and empower us to be the messengers of reconciliation in the same way that you are a messenger of reconciliation to us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.